My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 19 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast on our first show of 2021. everybody how's it going great to be back with you and we are going to stay positive and upbeat here on the trail running ireland podcast and while we might be restricted in terms of training and racing right now we're going to look forward to a late spring and summer 2021 full of races hopefully and in today's special show we're answering your training and racing questions that you've sent in over the last week with the help of running coach ireland head coach renee borg and for future episodes guys as we plan ahead for 2021 do reach out and let us know who you would like to see on the show we've got a couple of great guests in mind but i would love to hear from you the listener who you would like to hear on the podcast drop us a line on facebook or instagram whichever is handier guys we've also launched a patreon page for 2021 and let me just say from the start everyone that we'll never have a paywall for our show our aim is to support the sport of trail and mountain running in ireland with free and interesting content always but we do have some costs to cover it does take quite a lot of time to record and produce the show and if you would like to contribute towards that we would be very very grateful indeed you can support the show from three euros to 10 euros a month and if you do you'll be helping to keep us going over the course of the year and indeed help us to turn our passion and our hobby of trail and mountain running into a semi-professional production which would make us very very proud and grateful indeed but that's enough chit chat for now everyone let's get on with the show let's look towards being strong and race ready for when our races start and let's call in our racing and coaching expert Rene Borg everybody get your running gear on let's go Renny Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Great to have you back with us. Happy 2021. Yeah, happy New Year, Owen. Super. And how's it going for you, Renny, so far? All good, I hope, despite what's going going on outside. But let's not go there. Let's not mention it. No, let, let's not mention it. We'll just skip what is it, Skip quickly on to the, the real topics and questions at hand. Yeah. And before we get into the questions, Rennie, and we've got some super questions that came in from the listeners. Um, do you have any goals or objectives for your own racing, Rennie, this year? Because I know you had a, a very enjoyable and a very interesting experience in the Kerryway Ultra Light in 2020. Any plans set yourself for 2021? Yeah, I've I've just been looking at them really this last week. Uh, I had a rough idea before Owen, but you know, before everything that we can't talk about happened, my plan for this year was to do the World Masters in Tipperary. Uh, as some people might know, the World Mountain Masters it was meant to be uh, this autumn, but because the championship last year got pushed. Uh, so did the Irish one. So now the date is 2022, I believe. So for, for me, that's kind of the, the real carrot in the back of my mind is, the, is that event. So when I look at 2021, I'm thinking, what should I do this year that, that'll help 2022? 
Um, so originally I had planned to go to EcoTrail Paris now in March um, because I wanted to try that um, return back up to the 80k distance and, you know, get the finish in the Eiffel Tower that you can get there. Um, but they have moved their events to what will most likely be the 3rd of July. So right now that's kind of where I'm thinking on. I'm thinking maybe there's an outside chance I could go there um, come the early summer. So I'm probably going to structure my training in this kind of first six months of the year towards that. Um, and I think other than that, process goals is something I'm, I'm big on as probably some of the listeners know, you know, and last year was really, really good in terms of me for mileage um, compared to the, the years that came before it. Like I think the 2019 was a bit of a disaster with 1600 something kilometers, you know, <laughs> there wasn't a lot, but um, yeah. I got up over 3000 last year. So my first goal is I want to repeat that this year. I want to do the same kilometers, the same elevation, and the same hours as a minimum, but hopefully with better quality. That's kind of the, I think if I can do that, I'll have two really, really good years then to go into 2022 on where I want to specifically focus on what it takes to be good at, at the world masters. And I think the course there is 12 kilometers, you know, so it would be very different than training from an 80K. Yeah. And I think patience is key now, Rennie, isn't it? Like I know some people might be a bit down because maybe they don't have any spring races to aim for at the moment. But it is a chance, we've said it a couple of times before Christmas, to get our base mileage in now. So when we do get the race come, hopefully April and May, we'll be stronger than ever. It is hard. It is tough. I've been talking to a couple of runner friends who, who are a bit down at the moment because they, you know, their goal races realistically won't happen until the summertime. And they're finding it hard to motivate themselves at the moment, which is totally understandable. But it, it is what it is. And I think it's just, you know, get the miles in, get strong. I think as well, as we get older, and I think, you know, the age profile of trail runners and mountain runners, you know, it is kind of mostly 30 onwards. As we get into our late 30s and our 40s, there is only so many times you can go to the well in races over the course of 12 months as well. So, you know, maybe it can be a blessing in disguise. We're training, but we're not training too hard. We're maybe training at 80, 90 percent. And then when we do get our races come the summertime, absolutely. We empty the tank. We go to the well and hopefully have, you know, results that are as good as they ever have been come the second half of this year. Yeah, I think you need to look at the positive in any situation, even when it's difficult. And as you say, you know, no matter how hard you are and how many races you uh, have the potential to do. And we know some runners can do an incredible amount of races in, in a career, you know, much more than than many others might get. But there, there is a limit somewhere. Somewhere there's a figure where you won't have another big effort in you. Uh, so if, if there's something positive, sure, yeah, let's. You, you can save up a few in the next six months and then hopefully uh, you get to spend them all after that. Uh, absolutely. Money in the bank. But Randy, let's get into our questions because we've got some really interesting questions. Thanks a million to all the listeners who sent in their questions on Facebook, on Instagram. And the first one, Randy, that we have is from Barry O'Neill from Instagram. And he said, is it bad to do all runs on the road, tarmac, all the time? Is there a benefit to mixing up terrain? Many thanks from Barry O'Neill. Yeah, so as the regular listeners know, we preach consistency a lot uh, as the secret of running. 
but it's really consistency with variety. You know, that's a better way to look at it because it's, you know, if, if consistent monotony uh, will always stress your body in exactly the same way. And that's a very, very good recipe if you want a quick injury. So basically the way to think of your body to understand that question is it's one big spring and it's a big spring that adjusts its stiffness based on the ground that you run on, the speed that you run at and the footwear you wear. So anytime you vary your speed or your surface or your footwear, you force the body to basically adapt differently, you know, to set a different level of tension. And then the stress becomes, you know, spread differently as well. So that reduces the risk of injury. So what I would say is that the first thing is the first and short answer is it's a good idea to mix up terrains, but it's key to understand that it's not a case of hard surface, bad, soft surface, good, because even if you have a soft and uneven terrain, you know, there's drawbacks to that. So for instance, all the joints need to flex more on that sort of terrain. There's much greater requirements on your stability muscles uh, and the muscular system in general has to work harder when the surface is less compact. So that can stress the body as well, you know, and that can cause a different set of injuries if, if we think that, oh, let's just do a lot of soft uh, surface training and, and we'll be fine. So, you know, the, the main benefit of having some trail actually is that your gait is more irregular. You know, so every foot strike is less similar than the one uh, before. Whereas when you run on roads, the, your each foot strike can become nearly like metronomic. So it's nearly the same. Uh, and that can become a problem because, you know, a lot of people know that a lot of injuries are repetitive strain. And the keyword there is repetitive. So when you mix up surfaces and footwear and speed, you reduce that repetitive load. But each runner has to work out for themselves what is the right balance for the events that they're training for? Uh, so for instance, if you're a road runner, then by all means you can do trail and especially hard pack trail, which is not too different. Um, but there has to be some road running there somewhere or your body will not actually, you know, it will not learn how to optimally tense when it's in contact with the surface you want to race in. But on the other hand, you will find very easily that you might not respond well, let's say if you do seven days a week, just pounding the tarmac. Um, and as I said, the balance can be very individual. You know, I know plenty of people who do fine with lots of road running. And then I know other people who have had such bad experiences or injuries related to hard surfaces that they can only do one or two runs on road um, per week. And they just have to work with that. You know, in my view, you know, we work with the situation we're in. Uh, so for Barry, I, I, I think I know the particular Barry O'Neill actually was asking this question, I, if it's him. Uh, he has access to plenty of good trails, so just get on them, Barry. Okay, yeah. And of course, one thing with the roads as well is to be very careful with the camber on the roads, that to make sure that the road you're running on is evenly flat, because if you're consistently running on a road with a camber where one leg is lower than the other, that's asking for trouble as well. And I remember, you know, my favorite place to run, Rene, at home is the Phoenix Park, because I found that in the Phoenix Park, you've got a perfect combination. When you go for your long run, you can mix and match trails grass and road of course as well so if you can find somewhere like that for your training where you can even mix two or three different surfaces that's ideal as well um okay 
Question number two from Gavin Byrne, who we had on the podcast, of course, last year. Gavin had a tremendous victory down in the Kerry Way Ultra. I think it was the second time winning it. He's represented Ireland twice as well in world championships. He's a superb ultra and trail runner. And Gavin's question, Rene, is how long should the longest run be in comparison to the event? Let's say a 50 miler. It's a good question, Rennie. What do you think? Do Is somebody who's training for an ultra and say it's a 50-mile event, do they need to hit 50 miles in their training? Well, I, I, no, that's the short answer. If you're training for 50 miles, you don't need to run 50 miles in training. You know, no more than, you know, the vast majority of people have no need to do a marathon before marathon day itself. You know, there are a few elite runners where, where there can be benefit in a slow marathon at some stage if they've exhausted, you know, all other possibilities of adaptation. Um, but basically, the thing with ultra running, as you know, is that they, the, the rules are less well established. So this is a question that comes up an awful lot. Um, but there are a few kind of good rules of thumb that people use. But the first thing to understand in relation to that question is that, you know, the, when you go out and run, the more hours you run, the less return on investment there is. So in the first and second hour that you're running, you get by far most of the adaptive response that you're going to get. So that means from a physiological point of view, hour three and four and five and six and seven that you are out training, give they give you much less bang for your buck in terms of physical adaptations. And of course, than the first two hours, but, and there's a longer recovery then in most cases. So that means those types of super long runs uh, are used more sparingly uh, because they have a different goal. You know, the goal of those runs really isn't necessarily uh, to get a, physiolo a physiological response, it is to prepare mentally and logistically and nutritionally for the exact challenges that you face in the race, you know, because there might be things with your gear, such as, you know, how much your backpack chafes or how much water you need to drink per hour that you can only figure out if you spend a lot of time on the trail, you know, something that only happens after hour four. So if you're only ever prepared by running three hours, the first time you would notice this problem is in the race itself. So, so that's where this idea comes in that in ultra running, we need these things we call very long runs. Um, so some of the easy rules of thumb that exist around it is, first of all, in, in ultras, the kind of textbook approach would be if you if you go up the distances, you know, you start with a 50K, then you go to a 50 miler and, you know, then 100K, 100 miles and, and beyond. Um, now, I know not everyone follows it as strict as that, but let's say you're preparing for a 50 miler. You can do that... Um, on a run, a long run that is somewhere between uh, a marathon and a 50K. The, I would say for the vast majority of people, that would be enough mental and physical preparation. So then the key is to establish, if I run that distance very, very easily, how long would it take me to recover? So you wouldn't be doing it, obviously, three weeks before, because you might not, as a relatively new ultra runner, you might be able to shake that off. So generally, in ultras, they they place these kind of the final workout, the, the real long one, they place it somewhere between eight and 12 weeks away from the main event, especially for novices, you know, so experienced ultra runners who know their recovery curve better, they might be able to say, put it six weeks before, because let's say someone like Gavin, I imagine if he did a 50 K run, um, he can shake that off really, really quickly. And I'm sure Gavin knows himself roughly how long it takes him to shake off a, a slow 50 K run. Um, if we go to the next distances up, let's say the, the 100 mile, 
you know, for that, it's if you look at textbook programs, they would suggest, first of all, a much longer buildup for a 100 mile run than you would have for a 50 mile run. So longer preparation time so that you have room to put in, say, a 100K, a 50 mile or both in the buildup. And generally, they are a good bit further out. So you would often see uh, if you had a 100K race as part of your buildup to a 100 miler, it would generally be as far out, you know, as about 16 weeks. Because essentially, it's, 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 it's a big event, even 100k, you know, if you give it any kind of, of effort and attention. So it's better to instead of having to, to plan it as a training run to have an actual 100k race, have a few weeks where you dose down, shake that off properly, and then you nearly have, you know, uh, a whole other build up on the other side. But there isn't a ratio Owen, that you can say. Um, but you don't need to go for a 100 miler, you know, you, it'd be totally pointless to go out and run 80 miles in the last phase because it would just take too much out of you in relation to the race itself you know you and you would not need to learn uh, there's not much you would learn there that you couldn't learn in other ways is the way i would put it yeah and i remember we had pablo v on an episode two Rennie, who won tds in utmb last year 120k race and i remember asking him about his long runs at the weekends preparing for that win over in chamonix and he never went anywhere near 120k in racing and maybe there's one more um strategy for it Rennie, that i might add to the conversation is that you could always try and do your 50 mile preparations over two days maybe the 30 miles on a saturday but you recover overnight you refuel you rest and then you could do anything from 15 to 20 miles on the sunday so you are running mentally and physically tired you're helping prepare but at least you've gotten a night's sleep in and you're reducing your risk of injury as well yeah, well, that's something that's often forgotten you know, and that that's in a lot of <clears throat> for the few ultra textbooks <clears throat> oh excuse me that we have today, back-to-back long runs is what they call this strategy. It's very common, you know, and you see it a lot. So ultra runners, basically, they try and pack in a lot of hours on a particular weekend. So, if, you know, you let's say you had a, a two and a four hour run. So you still get six hours in where you're pretty much running tired. And that's what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to get the body used to moving forward when it's not in prime condition and of course the only drawback of that is when you run tired the injury risk is slightly greater so it's considered an approach for experienced people um, and finally of course is the overall volume is just as important you know if you can keep a very high weekly volume for long long periods of time then your body will be able to do a lot on the day and just to give an example like we had a, I had a client before Christmas who pretty much jumping out of an event recovery period suddenly decided that he, he wanted to do 100 kilometers. Um, I think it was on something like six weeks notice. And, and obviously, by the textbook, it's not enough time, um, especially coming out of recovery. But it was a way to get around it. And it was just focusing on basically getting him as fresh as possible and getting the running volume as far back up we could. And then he just had to, to, to take that into the race. But in that case, there was absolutely no... Um, preparatory race for those 100 kilometers beyond the marathon he had just done but in that example the marathon was enough right so running 42k was enough preparation that he was able to complete 100k 
Yeah, I think using races that are less um, distance wise in terms of preparing for your actual real objective. I think that's a great strategy as well. Our next one, Rene, is from Ryan on Instagram. And this is something that I'm very interested in, but I have to admit, I'm very reluctant to try in races, in ultra races, of course, that are very long and that you need to run overnight. So the question from Ryan is, I'd be interested to know how to train and develop their techniques for when the sleepiness creeps in during the deep, dark stages of a race or towards the last stage of an ultra when you are grinding it out but you can't seem to shake the drowsiness many thanks in advance that's from ryan in instagram so Renny, what do you think i don't know if you, have you ever tried it yourself running through the night in a long long ultra and how do we prepare for sleep deprivation or even training our body to take advantage of those micro sleeps maybe of 20 to 25 minutes that might help keep you going over a long, long ultra? You know, my experience with that is limited because obviously my own racing career, the longest has been 50 miles. And in the first 50 miler, we did have some navigational problems to say the least. So I, we did end up wandering around in the dark for longer than expected, but we, there was still, we didn't miss a full night's sleep. So didn't get into that dynamic. I have missed a lot of night's sleep though with the three kids over the last five years. <laughs> and all I can say that's relevant from that experience is that you're, tolerance to lack of sleep is definitely trainable because that's one thing I learned. I think for the first three years, I didn't sleep through a night, um, maybe more than one or two nights, you know, so that's a long period of time to go from having a routine, you know, with no kids where I just could sleep through every night to suddenly have to operate normally on disrupted sleep and the body adapted. Like I, I noticed that and it has stayed adapted. I don't have the same sleep requirements now, even though the kids sleep better than I used to have. Now I know it's not, this specific situation but it, we, we we do know that there's ways to train yourself to handle less sleep so obviously the first strategy is to expose yourself to this in training and maybe to look at the sleep routine in general um you know are you how is your normal sleep is that as good as as it could be but in terms of i think the specific race it's it's about looking at um First of all, the, the tactics that other ultra runners are, are using for this. First of all, it's the starting point. Um, and when you place your last sleep before the race, because it obviously races start at very different times, you know, with some like the Wickle round, a lot of people will start right at midnight. Whereas, uh, say, Eco Trail Geneva, which I was planning to do back in June, they started at 4 a.m. Uh, so I, I, was st I started all my long runs. Um, nearly at that time of day uh, to try and get used to running in that cyclist. Um, so it would be about figuring out when is the race starting? Where is my sleep placed um, in relation to that? And if there is a big gap between your last sleep and the race start, um, would you benefit from in the period leading into it, shifting your sleep routine slightly? Or do you would you benefit from doing some some naps leading into, you know, so that you basically, I know you can't really build up a reservoir of sleep, but at least to be as rested as possible when it starts. Um, and as you say, I think micro sleeps have to be key because you see it in all of the, the really big record attempts. I know Paul Tierney, for those who watched his video about him breaking the Wainwright record, uh, you notice that he would often just basically lie down for two or three minutes on the grass, nearly on the top of a hill with um, a bit of a blanket or something over him. 
and then he would go again and then he had longer sleeps um, at kind of the aid stations you know it might be something more like a power nap of 15 minutes or it might even I, I don't remember actually now off the top of my head what his longest sleep was but you would definitely need to work out um, you know I would go do some research on and read some blogs from leading ultra runners of what are the different sleep strategies that they are using for these extremely long events um, and try and see which one you would like to copy, you know, and then experiment with that. And finally, of course, there's stuff such as stimulants, you know, caffeine, which could help if you know how to time it and, you know, you know how quickly it hits. I think, what's his name? Uh, Evan on the podcast, on he mentioned what the, the timing is, but I think it takes about just over an hour for caffeine to truly hit and get the full effects. Um, I could be wrong about that. It's just off the top of my head. But you need to know what it is um, and so that you can time it ahead of these weak spots. But at the same time, of course, depending on the length of the event, that might not be a sustainable strategy for a multi-day race, for instance, because you can't just keep kicking yourself away with caffeine. But it might be enough in a 100-mile ultra where you are, if, you, if you're finishing somewhere between 24 and 48 hours, um, you know, if you go into that second day, the, the what do say, caffeine could play a critical role at getting you through one or two bad spells. But I would imagine it isn't enough. Like you will need a few power naps along the way as well. Yeah, and one very important thing, of course, when you're napping or sleeping in races, is to use the life bases as much as you can if you are taking a nap Randy. i remember there's a very interesting scenario happened in um, oman by utmb there last year where one of the runners um he, he wasn't a very experienced ultra runner ultra running in in a country like oman it's still very much in its infancy still very still very much a young sport so the, the runners didn't really know how to cope with a long ultra that went through the night and a lot of them actually ended up just going for sleeps on the side of mountains and sleeping for hours and hours or they actually ended up just going back to their house which was maybe close to the course and sleeping on their house so the race organizers actually couldn't track them and couldn't find them and you know the the local omani um, army were sent out looking for them mountain rangers sent out and it applies for i mean races in europe of course as well that if you are running through the night make sure you use your life basis to help stay safe on the mountainside as well a great tip that i got Renny, for sleeping as well that i got from the spanish trail running team and um, i was sitting beside some of them on the way to patagonia last year for the trail running world championships and one of them was taking melatonin a melatonin supplement and what I, i've started i started to use it myself since then and i can find that it's very very good if you need to get to sleep early, say if you need to get up early for work, early for training, or even if you need to get to sleep early for a race, an ultra race that might be starting, as you said, at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning. And melatonin, of course, it's naturally produced in our body to help us get to sleep. But sometimes an extra couple of milligrams from a supplement can help induce a nice, comfortable, deep sleep a lot quicker. Likewise, if you're training very hard, especially for ultras, and your body is just exhausted and sore, and sometimes when we're so sore and so exhausted, we can have trouble sleeping, melatonin is actually a super supplement for that as well. Yeah, melatonin and tryptophan is another one. And we could nearly do a whole podcast maybe at some say about sleep because there's a lot of things about restful sleep. And it, it would go into, if you were to plan, if I was going to do an event like this at some stage, 
I would probably try and plan ahead of time a sleep routine um, that was going to be my plan A and I'll probably base it around where I would roughly expect to be at uh, say at an aid station or something like that. And then you would want to make sure that you are not hammering the caffeine down in the period um, that gets too close to to these, uh, you know, sleep periods, you know, so you, you could have a, a plan A at least marked out on paper. And I know, you know, it's very rare that plan A goes exactly the way that it is, but at least you have that as a base, you know, and then you can improvise a bit from that, you know, if you're not as tired or if you're more tired than you expect at certain times. Uh, so yeah, that's probably, um, hopefully a bit of a starting point, you know, I mean, so we can't be much more concrete, but I think there, there is a lot of individualization in trying to get an optimal sleep strategy. And it might also have to do with figuring out, you know, what exactly are the triggers of tiredness. There's a story, uh, actually, I just wanted to maybe bring uh, from our, a late friend of mine and everyone in Imran knows Adrian Tucker, uh, who was a very popular ultra runner he once told me a story from the petit trot de leon which is the, obviously the really really long utmb event where he he said his running pole saved him because he was on a really technical trail with the running poles and he actually fell asleep as he was walking and wow. what, what woke him up was the pole hit the ground and just that jolted him back to sleep. Uh, <laughs> and I suppose there's two lessons to be learned from that. One is if you're getting that tired, stop before you have a very dangerous fall, you know, better to sleep a little bit in advance. And the second is that running poles might be very useful gear when you're tired. Sure. Maybe even something simple like just uh, turning up the volume on your Spotify playlist. Listening to loud music might help keep you awake as well. But um, Jay, Ryan, thanks for meeting for that, Ryan. That was a super question. Moving on to the next one, Rene. We've got Joseph Sands on Facebook. And I love this question. Um, how should we incorporate training for an ultra for those with physical jobs? We can always hear advice for the office worker but rarely for those accumulating four or more hours of aerobic activity and don't sit for hours on end every day for six days a week. Thank you. Keep up the great work. A super question from Joseph. Um, Rennie really, really enjoyed reading that when I read it because absolutely the, the people who have physical hard jobs, they're often forgotten about as we, you know, as we look to try and help the poor office worker who's sitting down all day in the same position. Uh, I know the two of us had office jobs in, in, in a different lifetime. Thankfully we're, thankfully, we're out of them now. But yeah, Rennie, what, what about the, the physical worker? And I'm sure you know, like myself, stories of people maybe who have had physical jobs. And yeah, it can be very, very tough. I remember a friend of mine from Rathfarnham, Rennie, um, John Brooks, yes. who was a superb mountain runner, um, originally from Scotland, moved over to Ireland a long time ago. And he had a very demanding job. He was a plasterer. So he was on a ladder, he was on stilts all day. And I remember he explained to me that that was a big reason or a big, one of the big factors in what ended, pretty much ended his competitive career anyway, because he got terrible hamstring trouble from being on the stilts all day. So what do you think yourself, Randy? Any advice for those people who have the tough physical jobs? Yeah, well, that's a good introduction uh, to the downsides of the physical job because it can work for you and it can work against you. 
Um, and I actually remember this story, John, well, because I did a running assessment of him around that time because I know he, he was struggling to shed the problem. And he told me this story. And I thought, yeah, that's a, that is a unique challenge, you know, to be on stills uh, all day and then have to put the mileage on top of that. Um, on the other hand, the, the kind of the positive example that most people will hear is these people who are uh, farmers or kind of similar professions. They often find it easier to tolerate a lot of the running volume because their bodies are naturally in a way resistant to being on their feet all day they lift a lot they move around in a lot of different positions so they get they get kind of a, a natural strength and conditioning routine and first the first lesson from that is that generally if you work with that sort of physical job where it is demanding every day that it tends to be totally counterproductive to add a strength and conditioning routine on top of that because you already have it you know it's baked in to your lifestyle um, but maybe if you take the downside first, um, so when you, if you have a certain type of manual job that is, those jobs can often involve repetitive positions that contribute to injuries that you might feel while you run. But when you run, uh, it's important to understand that those injuries might be coming from your job, you know, so that's, that means that you might have to assess what you're doing in your workplace to find the cause of some of the pains you have. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, for instance, this is typical with stuff like factory work, uh, you know, which where you're standing at a machine in particular uh, in one position, you know, moving or moving in and out of three positions, uh, or you might be carrying things all day. In those cases, it's just as important as for an office worker to try and reset yourself a bit before you go into your runs if you have the time you know so for instance if you know your back is always extremely stiff and sore because of the lifts find an exercise you can do before the run that helps loosen your back out um, that would be a classical example also look at your work footwear because I, I do work with a few runners who are you know in the kind of plastering profession and they often tell me that well one guy said he was actually it was his own fault he said he was always wearing big uh, old trainers walking around and they were actually messing his feet up and his knees up. Uh, whereas for other workers, especially again, if you're in a factory environment, the challenge is you might be wearing safety shoes, which are quite heavy, uh, you know, and they can lead you to be quite tired. So another thing to look at for someone who has a job is the timing of the run is for instance, are you so tired at the end of the workday that you feel it impairs your run because then you might want to move the run either to your lunchtime or to the morning now i know a lot of people who work in factories and things like that have to start super early um so for them it might not be an option uh, no so then it's it's there's the question of volume uh, so if you're already getting every day this sort of low aerobic stimulus and you find that compared together with the other volume you're doing it's just too much for you you're always too sore too tired well maybe take away some of the zone one and zone two type the easy running that you've planned because your lifestyle is already taking care of that if that makes sense that's only how i would look at it a good example we have with um, an athlete i won't name him now but he's very unique in terms of he's a very good ultra runner he would finish in the top 10 um but he only trains three days a week and the reason he's right you know, and the reason he trains three days a week is because he's a farmer and he works really hard uh, every day. 
and so for him, he is able to finish in top tens off his farmer fitness, if I can use that term, and yeah. three and three very focused runs. Now, when we do those three runs, do we try and get a lot out of them? You know, I can't schedule um, three runs the way I would do it for another person for him, because when he's out those three times, he needs to make it count. So, you know, he, he would easily do more than one long run a week, you know, to make the most of that time. So that could be another way, you know, if you, especially if you work in a shift profession, you know, where you have certain periods that are really hard physically, and then you have periods of total downtime. Uh, this is common with nurses, for instance, you know, who would be up and about and on their feet and night shifts and everything else. Um, and then they can have two weeks where things are really, really easy. So what we do with them is we periodize their weeks so that um, the recovery weeks hit the heavy shift weeks and the work weeks are the weeks where they're off. Yeah, and maybe likewise for the weekly sessions, Rennie, as well, where traditionally Friday might be a very, very easy day or a day off. And maybe that's the day when people who have very tough physical jobs, maybe that's the day they can actually do their sessions and then take advantage of the weekend as well, get their long run maybe in on a Saturday or a race or whatever. And then Monday, when they're back working hard, that's when they take the day off running. So they... They do their running training around their work schedule as well. And I suspect that for people who are working very hard, hydration is key. You know, if you're training in the morning time and then you're working hard all day as well, um, imagine all the calories that you're using up as well. So hydration and probably food is your friend, I'd say, as well. Yeah, because even standing, you burn more energy than if you sit. So you can only imagine, like, obviously someone who is on their feet all day needs to eat even more. And if you are very, very busy, sometimes you might not have the appetite uh, early enough. So for, for someone who's on the go like that, that's where kind of modern inventions like, um, you know, recovery drinks and stuff like that, or even pre workout mixes you know for high intensity workouts can be useful because you might actually struggle let's say especially if you're someone who's on on the road like an esb worker or something like that you know where you might be driving around all day working on various poles and then you have to stop at some car park um you know and do your run so in that case you mightn't be able to get in the same amount of calories as someone in an office who can go down a nice canteen and have a big meal so you need to to make sure you pack well and that you understand your energy requirements um as there was actually a good final kind of anecdote on this, Owen, is I myself, when I moved from office work to this job, we used to do a lot of weekend workshops before uh, we had the kids here um, and I gave it up. But it's that was actually a, a real shock to the system for me because I used to do all of my running in the weekend, like that, or not all of it, but I would do the, the biggest part in the weekend. But if I did a weekend workshop where you were actively coaching, physically active, you know, eight, 10 hours, each of those two days, I had zero energy for running after that. And it was partly because I wasn't used to it, but also secondly, because they, they, it was, they were very intense. So as you say, in, in those cases, I then had to begin to shift. So I started doing my, my long runs in that period on Mondays and Tuesdays. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe somebody like Joseph could even get those micro sleeps in that we mentioned in the previous question. If they have an hour off for lunch, if they can find somewhere quiet, to get a little siesta in for 15 or, or 20 minutes. That could be a good idea for them as well. well. Yeah, my old friend Jason used to sneak down to the car park uh, under the Microsoft building, Owen, and sleep yeah. 15 minutes in his car with his earphones in. 
He wasn't the only Microsoft um, worker that did that. A, a very good friend of mine, and um, when we were in heavy cross-country season training mode, used to do the very same thing, I think, in that building as well. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of people, vagrants sleeping in the cars there. Yeah, yeah. Um, next one, Rene, is from Tom on Instagram. Could Rene discuss building distances and transitioning from half to marathon and from marathon to ultra and the role of strength and flexibility in improving endurance? I think there's two very different questions there, Rene. And if Tom doesn't mind, I might focus on the strength and flexibility side of that question. Because if you want to maybe touch on it quickly, the whole concept of transitioning, excuse me, from half to marathon and marathon to ultra, I think that's very much just patience and over time. But I'd be very interested to get your opinion, Rene, on strength work and flexibility in terms of improving endurance and being able to battle away in long ultra races. What are your thoughts on strength and flexibility? Yeah, so this is a topic that it's broad. So to cut to the core of it is that, you know, first of all, what is it? Um, So flexibility or mobility, as it's often, you know, that's the word we tend to use more for running today because they're slightly different, but it's the ability of your joint to move through its full range of motion. And this creates something called degrees of freedom. Now, degrees of freedom is incredibly important for the human body in every respect. So the more options your body has, the more likely it is that it can take actions that keep it healthy in relation to what happens to it. So in the specific context of running mobility or running flexibility, it means that the greater range of motion you can express in a joint, the more options your body has available to solve the problem of running. And that means, for instance, if you have a very stiff and rigid hip joint, That means when you go and you try and run at various speeds, the body has a very limited range of solutions available to it. Um, And it'll try, if it doesn't have enough freedom, basically, in the hip, it'll try and go find that freedom in the knee or in the ankle or in the upper back or somewhere else. So the more trapped we are, because you might then find, oh, the knee is a bit stiff as well, the ankle is a bit stiff as well. And then suddenly we have really whittled down the, the options. And that means then you are every foot strike you're operating within this very narrow range and that is when injuries happen um, because you cannot uh, adjust enough in a way to the the various impacts and stresses that come and it's especially true on the trail and solutions for that Rene I think the days of static stretching certainly before we go out running there long gone so is the solution is it things like yoga is it things like activation exercises i know back in 2016 you taught me a fantastic set of activation activation exercises that i still do now many four or five years later 10 15 minutes before i go out in every run just to release the hip flexors to warm up all the muscles where before you know a decade ago 15 years ago i would have been doing the static stretching that a lot of people wear but i think those days are gone yeah static or passive stretching now it's understood is excuse me is generally not conducive to performance so if you actually look at the studies you know if you do passive stretching i should say what passive stretching is is what you might have done in gym class as a kid so it's when you just uh, grab a joint like let's say you grab your the top of you can do this as i speak actually if you grab the top of your uh what do you call it your fingers with your hand your other hand and you just pull down 
on your wrist, you start to feel a stretch across the muscles of your inner lower arm. Uh, and this is essentially what you do with a traditional calf stretch. You're just pulling at the elastic. Uh, and the idea was that this would help release and lengthen these fibers so that the muscle would be longer. But it's actually a misunderstanding in many, many ways of how joints work and should work. Um, so what they found in studies was this inhibits uh, performance because it creates a muscle that is too lax. Because they, they, the thing with muscles is muscles react to the movement of joints and what this means is when they tense up, they're, they're doing so in order to try and respond to a problem. And this means if you create a muscle that's really long and weak and lax, uh, you can create as many problems as you uh, are trying to solve. And at the same time, it's also, as, as someone said, there's actually only one muscle in the body. Uh, the only time there are separate muscles is when you cut them apart on the operating table or, you know, during a dissection. So what that means is if you start stretching one place, it's like you're trying to loosen a spider's web in, you know, in one little area without paying attention to what happens everywhere else. So what the profession has moved to is that it's more about mobilizing the joint. And, in, and the way to do that um, is with exercises such as self-release, you know, with foam rollers, but better even with stuff like trigger point balls and things like that, where you can get in really deep. What this does is it removes adhesions and what's called trigger points in muscles. And I know Jason talked on that on a recent podcast. That makes that muscle work better. So it's nothing to do with making it longer or anything like that. It just reduces the tension and the restrictions that sit in that tissue. So in a way, it's like flossing your teeth. You clean it up. So if you do that on all the muscles around your hip, for instance, aggressively over a period of time, then you will feel a lot more open and freer in the hip. And that means you have more range of motion. And then to the question, if you have more range of motion, you will have more speed. And not only that, you will have a better foot strike because all the motions that need to happen can happen correctly. So if one muscle is, let's say, dysfunctional, like typically like the quadriceps, uh, you know, which is obviously the big thigh muscle, that's often overactive in people from sitting. When that's overactive, the glutes, which extend the hip, get uh, reduced in their functionality. And that leads often to what's called overstriding. And overstriding leads to breaking and breaking leads to slowing down so you kind of get you can see if your body is full of all these really restricted um, muscles uh, and joints that feel all clogged up and compressed then you cannot move in an optimal way and if you can't move in an optimal way you can't get optimal speed either so that's really the role of it um, what you call activation Owen is is, the, is usually the next step um, of this process once you have released the muscles you feel are tight you should activate the muscles that are considered kind of the prime movers for running. And that's traditionally the glutes, you know, so all the, the muscles around the buttocks. Um, and, and it can also be a case that you need to strengthen some of the muscles that have become inactive because of bad habits over many years. And traditionally in runners, muscles that really get hammered are the lower leg ones, you know, so that's where specific uh, rehab or strengthening exercises can come into play. But Never do this blindly would be my advice because you can, if you train muscles in isolation without knowing what you're doing and without knowing whether you, you might be training a muscle that is already overactive, you know, and, and ignoring and, and then you would exacerbate a problem 
so it's very important that if you're planning on going down strength and conditioning routine, unless you're just going to do something broad and general where you work a little bit of everything, uh, yeah. that you do it with the help of a practitioner uh, who can show you your priorities, you know, and the exercises that will bring you towards the goal. Yeah, I mean, we could do nearly a whole podcast on strength training itself, Rene. And I remember for years, I did kind of battle myself with the question of, well, do I need to be doing supplemental strength training? Because surely when I'm doing my hill training or when I'm just running, I'm activating, I'm using, I'm strengthening all the muscles that I need when I'm actually running. But I think by doing some extra complementary strength work, you can help get stronger. And of course, if we have stronger muscles, it means we can often increase our speed, enhance our efficiency and avoid injury. So, I mean, would you recommend, Randy, at least doing one day of strength work per week? I think if you're going to bother, do two. Uh, now, one is always better than zero. You know, that's that's obvious. But I would say if you want to start a routine and you want to not be frustrated by lack of progress, you know, you need more than once a week, two or two or three sessions. But they might necessarily need to be very long. You know, you can get a huge amount out of 20 minutes of focused exercise, you know, not random off the Internet exercise, yeah. something focused to you. Um, and as you say, um, we, we probably should set aside maybe a podcast in the coming year to talk about it, because there's a lot here I would like, I'd like to bring it down to earth a little bit, you know, for instance, you know, can, can running um, actually substitute for strength work, because in some cases, it can under the right circumstances. Um, and what are all the different training system out there, you know, as you say, what about yoga, what does that do? What about Pilates? What about functional patterns, these kind of new, very running specific, you know, I, I, I was involved in that field uh, with some of the top experts for many, many years. Uh, so I think we could definitely provide a really good overview of how to handle all these many, because it's a bewildering jungle, you know, of exercise modalities, as they call them, exercise brands out there, you know, from CrossFit to yoga lattes and so on. There's so many options available. And just to touch on Tom's first part of his question, Rennie, and maybe we can just touch on it briefly because it is a very broad and it could give us an awful lot of content. Um, could Rennie discuss building distances and transitioning from half to marathon and marathon to ultra it's a very good question because i think you know we've seen it over years and years now the thousands of people for example that sign up for the dublin marathon on the road and i was one of these people anywhere the first race that i wanted to do was the dublin marathon and therefore instead of you know and um, trying to work on my speed over 5k or 10k or enjoying a track career or cross-country career first i wanted to go straight into the marathon now i was very young in the sport very naive in the sport and i did it but my coach grabbed me to the side one day and he said oh that's enough messing, <laughs> you know, let's do things properly now. Let's work on the track. Let's get your speed up. Let's get your endurance and strength up. And over time, maybe in a couple of years, we'll let you run the marathon again. And it actually took me really 10 years before I went back and I did the Dublin marathon. And I think the same applies for trail and ultra running as well. I think it would be crazy to jump straight into an ultra without doing a good half and a good um, trail marathon first. Yeah, you know, John Lenehan used to say, you know, when you could go up the ladder, don't skip a step. 
and you know on paper that's the ideal trajectory and we know you and I that most people ignore it I did it myself you know I think first year running suddenly I just decided I'll do the marathon and I had actually told myself I wouldn't um and and it caused a few problems you know but um the I think if you can you get a few free hits most of the time so once you get that out of your system then I think that, you know, if you are not already inclined to do so now, work your way up through the distances, you know, so to do a good half, you do a good 10K, to do a good 10K, do a good 5K, to do a good marathon, do a good half marathon um, first and so on. Then the, the ultra again is a little bit of a funny beast because there many coaches will tell you that a hundred K is in some ways easier than a marathon. And it sounds ridiculous to say so, but it has to yeah. do with the fact that the, a marathon in a way is it, especially if you have a bit of talent is both long and hard. Um, so they, and it's, it's, it's still fueled to a very high degree with um, sugar, you know, liver glycogen, these things, muscle glycogen. So it, it's a very stressful event in many ways on the body. It takes from everything. Whereas in an ultra, you are running the event nearly purely on fat and you, so there's not as much stress in your internal organs as there is a, in a marathon. And at the same time, the, the pace is significantly lower. So, and in a trail marathon also quite varied. So you can actually end up sometimes recovering quicker from an event like that, like from a road marathon. So that's just, just something to be aware of. So once you go from the, the marathon doesn't necessarily have to be an intermediary step to a hundred K, but a 50 K trail might be. Um, and then, Final thing on that is to understand there's quite a big difference between the half marathon and the marathon, and that's not appreciated enough. The, the half marathon is really the last event that you can train for with and get away with not having a really strong aerobic threshold, which means you have really good fat burning capacity because during a half marathon, you can pretty much get through with a good sugar burning system and a little bit of extra fuel from the outside because and then you can get through without crashing. But in the marathon, you won't get away with that. So what that means is the training is significantly different between the half marathon and the marathon more than people think. And again, that might be uh, nearly a topic we should explore separately at some stage, you know, because they're, um, did a lot of people think well that half marathon marathon training would look very similar and that if you can run a good half marathon you can automatically run a good marathon and that's quite often not true you need to certainly make your runs a lot longer and there needs to be a lot more of the kind of extensive steady work for a marathon whereas you can get away with not doing that for a half okay okay and um, we'll move on Rennie, to our penultimate question here from patricia coxon burn from instagram my question would be any suggestions for a beginner just turned 60 and running five years so i think patricia maybe means there any a beginner on the trails maybe because she's been running five years so she's got a, a lot of experience there i've done lara trail run quest glendalock and ackle both the shorter distances thank Thank you very much. So what do you think there, Patricia, for our trail runners who are in their late 50s, early 60s, what advice would you give them? And maybe would I start off by mentioning what we were discussing just a couple of minutes ago in terms of strength work and the importance of maintaining your additional strength work to help reduce the negative side effects of what happens. I think everybody, when we get into our mid thirties and forties onwards, that would begin to steadily lose muscle mass. 
Yeah, first of all, if she's running for five years, you know, I could nearly question whether Patricia is a beginner, but I imagine she means in, in relation to races and events. Um, but yeah, when you are a master's athlete, there's two main things is that you lose muscle mass, as you say. So strength training has a greater effect um, and it might it's a, it's a bigger priority, uh, especially if you're not active, because obviously, as I say, we have old farmers and so on as well. So, so some older people who keep very active don't have this problem because largely the reason we lose muscle mass as we get older is because of inactivity. It's just because life gets less and less physically challenging and we get more and more comfortable in many ways, uh, in many instances. So then we, we lose those qualities. There's, of course, some, some what we call factors as well that it's just part of the aging process. So um, it's kind of a broad question here. So I'm just thinking on how to, to best answer it because really, you know, suggestions for someone um, with that profile um, would be very individual. You know, it would be looking at your life history to see, you know, what was, what sporting history did you have before this? Because one thing that's interesting with masters runners is that they come in two types. Uh, there's the types like Patricia who seem to have started late, you know, unless, you know, she might've done all sorts of other sports before this that she's not telling us about. But if she only started running five years ago, she, she's only got five years on the clock and it might be on a body, you know, that's a bit older. Um, but Patricia will likely be able to, you know, slowly build up to more volume than someone who has uh, gone through 30, 40 years of an absolute you know, grinder, you know, these, this is the second type of masters runner, you know, people who have had the full career um, and they might be running out of ability to adapt, or they might have <clears throat> saved off so many injuries over the years that they have to make significant concessions to the way they train, you know, and typically the way we would see that is I know many masters runners now who their primary type of training is cycling. Um, and it's just because they have either decided or been forced um, not to run very much because they feel their joints can't handle it anymore. You know, they have various pains and niggles. So in those cases, when they want to keep running, they do as much running as they can. And that mightn't be as much as before, but then they try and make up the shortfall in other places, you know, so th and, and that is important. But I think at the same time as a master's runner, you should not look to the types of volumes of younger people and try and copy that you know you can look in any textbook and it'll say by and large as you get older the annual volume that you aspire to should be lower than what you would have aspired to when you were in you know 20s and 30s yeah. um both also because you have a life many have a lifelong fitness uh, now in patricia's case we don't know because she has trained for five years so we know she has that in her bank but we don't know what she did before that I'm sure it's very important Randy, as well to, as you get older, to make sure that you surround yourself with positivity as well, with positive people who will encourage you and pay absolutely no attention to the naysayers. And maybe when, you know, difficult days do come along, when you might pick up an injury and you're in your 50s or 60s and 70s, and people might say, oh, well, we told you so, sure, what are you doing? You're crazy running at this age, where injuries happen no matter what age you are. So if you do get injured, when you're a little bit older you just go through all the usual injury routines that anybody of any age would go through and just stay positive and make sure that you surround yourself with positive positive people yeah i think there's two things maybe to that we should have said here which is first of all as an older person i like to tell myself and to tell others that you know you don't have to hand the body back when you're finished with it so don't try and limit yourself out of a fear that you will you know maybe 
ruin yourself in some way because at the end of the day if you want to do something and there is some risk involved but this is the experience you want to have you know don't limit yourself out of fear because as I said, at the end of the day <laughs> you you can it's not a rental car <laughs> so it doesn't need to be in mint condition and i would rather arrive personally at the finish line a bit banged up and worse for wear but say i gave it a hell of a go i i, I took some risks i tried the the races I wanted to try, even if maybe it was stupid for, you know, I'm, I'm only 40, so it's too early for me to be saying these things probably, but you know, when I get to that age, I would hope that I would still want to explore running. Uh, but what I would like for myself at that age, so maybe that's a good final advice in this question. I would like to be doing things more for the pure experience, um, you know, and to take to get the social side of the running, to try challenges, to see interesting places in the world. Uh, and just for mm-hmm. me personally, whereas I think stuff like times and points and team placings and all of these things, I hope when, when I get into my sixties, like you, Patricia, I, I want those things to be in the background because <laughs> I, I think at that stage, I don't need to be chasing that anymore. I can just, uh, <laughs> but I, I can see myself Renny, and I've said it a couple of times before that I can see myself being a 60 year old and still trying to get on the podium in the over 60s <laughs> competition. <laughs> yeah. and, maybe that, and that's just another thing to say as well, that, I mean, for people who are still competitive in their, you know, 50s, 60s, or even say myself now turning 40, embrace the master's categories and embrace the master's events and so on as well. And even like, as I'm setting my goals for 2021, I am happy out running against other 40 year olds in the over 40s category, because at the end of the day, you know, we all have our different life stressors as we progress through the different ages. And somebody who's, you know, a little bit older with, with kids, responsibilities, mortgages, they have a lot more maybe stressors to overcome than a young whippersnapper in his early 20s who, you know, is full of the joys of life and can bounce and hop into training where the rest of us have to do our activation exercises and our flexibility and strength work and so on yeah well and uh, the flip side of that is that once you get past you know the difficult stage with kids which most people in their 60s obviously would be uh, and a lot of people in their 50s as well um you know that you actually get a lot of your freedom back uh, on the one hand, which is great because you can take advantage of that, but you just need to take your time, you know, and a lot of older people need to train a lot slower. They need to vary their training more. And as I said, they might have to do a bit more strength and conditioning, but at that stage of your life, you might actually have the time. And I certainly see that a lot, you know, for a lot of, it can also fill a gap because, you know, every phase of life has its own transitions. Um, and once certain things such as kids and all, they fly the nest, it can, as we know, it can leave the whole empty nest syndrome as they call it, but it can leave a gap. Um, and this is a great time of life to fill it out with self-realization. You know, if not, then then when is nearly what I would say. So I'd say to Patricia, definitely, whatever she she dreams of, whatever challenges on the trails really appeal to you. You know, that's what you should just throw yourself at, you know, because this is, um, we only get, well, maybe, maybe we get more chances than one, but let's assume we only get one chance to, to bank these experiences. Um, you know, we can't really waste our time being too careful um, and I do remember a guy, I think Martin Francis, a lot of Imerons will know him. He was always racing. And he told me it was because he was too old to be wasting his time uh, not racing. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> so there you go. You know, he wanted to get as many races in as possible yeah, while he could. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, our last question of the day, Rennie, and it's from our man on the ground, Simon Kelly. Simon, who comes on at the start of our shows to keep us up to date with races and results and the racing calendar. Now, Simon's question, Rennie, is, and I suspect and, and I hope that we would have maybe answered this in a lot of our previous questions. Um, what advice would you give to a high volume daily non-competitive runner someone who runs slow and steady a mix of trails treadmill and road covering 200 to 300 kilometers per week and it's advice for staying injury free and being able to complete longer and harder ultras and i think there's probably a lot of people with simon's profile who just love their big long ultras and are doing maybe steady steady miles week long so all year long week in week out um any advice for that profile of runner Renny? what do you think well when i first saw it i thought what can i tell a man who runs two to three hundred kilometers per week <laughs> but uh, yeah. but it's um it's it's an interesting one with, with that sort of volume um arthur lydiard uh, who was kind of as most as some people listening to this will know was one of the greatest coaches of history and when he built his system he became famous because they did 100 miles a week his olympians um, and they were obviously running this a good clip but he self-experimented to come up with that because people asked him well why 100 miles and he said well i tried 50 miles and that didn't make me uh, fit enough and then I tried going out and running up to 250 miles and then I just felt tired and he says eventually at 100 miles he felt that was the, the sweet spot for him and obviously the, he, he did understand that the sweet spot is different for everybody so the first thing I suppose is to 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 question for yourself at this stage of your career with what you have banked do you need to continue running that heavy mileage um, and how much of it do you need to continue is there a chance that you might actually perform better on less and maybe with less, but where there was more quality. So it's an open question because it's, uh, it, you know, yeah. if, if, if two to 300 kilometers is working for Simon right now, he should not be in a rush to throw it out. But I think it's just worth considering the possibility that a, yeah. diff that a bit less, you know, would be less risky, but it could even lead to better results because that sometimes happens. More isn't always better. Sure. And one thing that I was thinking of, um, Rennie, for somebody like Simon's profile, where they're not going to be running a 30 minute odd 10K or a 15, 16, 17 minute 5K. But is there any benefit for them in doing, say, their strides at the end of those long runs, some fast wind sprints, maybe, maybe even the odd five by 1K, just to activate those fast twitch fibers, which maybe they're not doing with all the steady, slow running? And would that actually help benefit them um, long term in their ultra running? Yes, it would. Uh, it's a nice quick fix, but there's a caveat attached to it, which is that when you're running those sorts of mileages, it depends on the individual again, what they're used to. But if you're running those sorts of mileages, quite often you're simply not able to add any type of speed uh, because just getting the body right to complete. I, I know I have noticed this myself when I've been building up, you know, and not to anything like Simon's mileages. But when I know once I hit a, a volume I hadn't done for a while, 
even getting a, some strides that was hard because the muscles were really struggling uh, to just adapt to the new volume. So the first thing would be, you know, if Simon wanted to make a change for speed, it, normally what you would do is you dial down the mileage a bit, you'd add in the new routine, you know, even if it's something gentle like stride outs and a few hill sprints, you know, which is not that taxing. Um, but you just dose down the mileage a little bit. And then once you have that integrated and you say, okay, this, this recovery is still normal, then you could add the, uh, the missing miles, if you want to use that phrase, back on. And then suddenly what you would have is a high mileage week, but with more variation, uh, which would, as, as we have talked about it, is a bit variation is, is, is definitely valuable and will give you abilities that are otherwise will start to degrade, you know, if, if all you do is two to 300 kilometers of mono pace. But I don't think that's what Simon is doing, um, especially if he's on trail. I imagine there is some variety in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think what, what motivates Simon is just the, the harder the challenge, the better, the longer the challenge, the better. And I think there's, there's a lot of ultra and trail runners out there that have, you know, big aspirations to complete a big UTMB or whatever big ultra might be. And and because, you know, it's still a relatively new sport, Rennie, as well, isn't it? So everybody's still learning all the time. And, um, you know, I think even as an ultra runner, it can take a couple of years just to get that magic formula that suits you it can and obviously for some people the the act of running high mileage itself is the goal you know and the race is just kind of the the reward and then it's not you know our our job as coaches to tell people to to run less if what they want to do is to run more so the whole volume question is more if you're actually trying to find your sweet spot then it's important to realize that just because you add more Sometimes when you add more, your performance in the races actually go down. So that could be something to look at. Another thing I might look at is at this stage of uh, if Simon wants, maybe if Simon feels that some of this is becoming a little bit of a drain to look at the season as a whole um, and to look at how many years he has accumulated mileage to see how big a period of year does he actually need to do all of this? Because yeah. maybe, maybe if, if, if it's most of the year at the moment he's putting on this much pressure, he could set aside one half of the year where there'll be a lot of this volume. But in the other half of the year, he might, you know, kind of branch out to other challenges. And that would then give the body a chance to revisit some areas of his running fitness that are long neglected. You know, and this is a good example kind of of having the same with marathon runners you know a lot of marathoners today they might have a whole cross country season um to do something else you know and to get a different fitness stimulus from the marathon and also to mentally refresh because even if you love long distances like ultras uh, maybe that that enthusiasm can be exhausted as well you know uh, maybe not for simon i don't know but it's uh, yeah, no, it, it does catch up with you i, I was listening <clears throat> to stephen scullion there and this morning just on his podcast and he had a, an incredible run of course in the london marathon and he smashed out of two hours and nine minutes but he just said that he got through the race itself fine and um, but it just it has taken him a really long time to recover from that big big performance more than more than ever before so it eventually does catch up with you so you do need to be very very careful with your annual plan i think well i know when, uh, you know our, our mutual friend barry murray would have said that after his ultra career uh, he was able for quite a number of years to still perform reasonably well at the level he wanted uh, without having to revisit the big distances he was doing and that's obviously because once you've done years and years of high volume you can sometimes get away with saying i'm going to train at a lower volume but i might increase my intensity a bit uh, so that's that's another strategy you know that you can look at if you feel there's a need for change 
But uh, me, I'm, it'd be interesting to explore actually this question a little bit more with Simon because I'm kind of curious what he is looking to change and why. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, Rene, we'll call it a, a day um, at that. Thanks a million, Rene, for your time. That's a, a well over an hour there. Some some great answers to some very interesting questions. Thanks to all the listeners who sent them in on Facebook and Instagram. And, and I know it's a busy time for you, Rene, at the moment now, getting all your training plans in place for your client base on runningcoach.ie. Everybody setting new goals and new objectives and new hopes for the year. So I appreciate your, your time today and we look forward ready to catching up over the next couple of weeks with lots more shows lots more episodes and we'll hopefully have simon back soon as well when we're back up racing and when there's um, news on the racing calendars thanks very much owen we'll speak soon big thank you to Rene for that and to the listeners for sending in those fantastic questions and hopefully some of the tips and advice that were mentioned there will help you be strong and race ready for when the races start again later in the year and they will start everyone it's just a matter of time and let's all help each other stay as positive as we can in the meantime thanks for listening in today as we said at the start of the show do drop us a line to let us know who you would like to hear from in 2020 in terms of our special guest interviews and if you would like to support the show we have our new patreon page that we mentioned at the start of the show where you can contribute as little as three euros a month to help keep us going over 2021 and just a reminder that our show will always be free and every listener will always be treated the same but a small contribution on patreon will keep us going over the course of the year until next time guys have a great week's training in Enjoy those miles, get your running gear on, let's go.